Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll examine developments on the national security front with Michael O'Hanlon, Senior Fellow and Director of Research and Foreign Policy at the Brookings Institution. Then later in the program, Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson will join Tory Gorman and me to discuss some new projections by the Congressional Budget Office on how altering a few key assumptions about the future could change the long-term budget outlook. Well, Michael O'Hanlon wears many hats at the Brookings Institution. He is the inaugural holder of the Philip H. Knight Chair in Defense and Strategy. He also serves as a member of the Defense Policy Board at the U.S. Department of Defense, And he was a member of the External Advisory Board at the Central Intelligence Agency in 2011 and 2012. He's the author of many books widely quoted on uh, defense and national security issues. And we are happy to have him back on Facing the Future. Michael, Tori, and Av, welcome to Facing the Future. Thank you, Bob. Thanks, Bob. There are certainly a number of hotspots around the uh, world uh, that we could talk about uh, that affect the U.S. and the potentially impact the budget and the economy. Let's begin with, uh, I guess, the hottest of hotspots, which is Ukraine. Um, you know, the, the U.S. to date has spent somewhere around or is committed to around $75 billion or $113 billion if you add uh, more than direct military aid to Ukraine. Um, so that's a lot. Uh, what What is the status of the war right now kind of on the ground as you assess it? Bob, I'm afraid that stalemate is the word that keeps coming to my mind more than any other. And obviously there are a lot of moving parts and there are a lot of efforts to break the stalemate. And we've all been reading about the sluggish Ukrainian offensive or counteroffensive, if you will, follow on offensive maybe because it's not really taking advantage of a Russian maneuver, which is a classic definition of counteroffensive. It's actually trying to respond and, and win back the 17 or 18 percent of Ukrainian territory that Russia still occupies. And unfortunately, of course, Russia has known this is coming for a long time, like the rest of us, and has prepared these World War I style uh, minefields and barrier zones and trench lines. And it, to me, it's, it's quite striking, even in this era of smartphone satellites and uh, high precision targeting, that this war looks to me more like World War I and the Western Front than it does anything else. Because given the amount of time the Russians have had to build up and the predictability of the Ukrainian assaults, this therefore is not really a counteroffensive. It's not taking advantage of any exposed Russian flanks or any particular uh, opportunities for outmaneuvering the enemy. It's trying to go straight into the lair of the dragon, if you will, and the Russians are pretty good at building up these kind of fortifications. The troubles they had last year uh, show that their military is not excellent. It's not super creative. 
but they've had a second mobilization. They've regrouped. Uh, they've focused on what they do well, what they do best. And often even and often countries or armies that are tired enough or demoralized enough that they don't want to go on the offensive can still do pretty well on the defensive where they have an easier time keeping their men alive and where they have an easier time succeeding in their tactical goals. So I think it's going real slowly and it will continue to. In the United States debate, we tend to put a lot on the decisions not yet to send F-16s or attack of missiles to Ukraine. I would support sending those weapons, but I wouldn't expect it to make a huge difference even there because it's not just the lack of air power that's thwarting Ukraine's ability to make headway. It is, as I say, the extent, the density, the lethality of those Russian frontline positions now backed up by some 300,000 Russian infantry along the line from Crimea up to the Donbass. So it's going to be tough sledding. And I think something would have to break at the political level one way or another for this war somehow to end in 2023. Otherwise, I think it's almost certain to go into next year, if not well beyond. That uh, raises a, a question, I guess, of sustained political support. I mean, uh, the scenario does seem the most likely that you, you just described because you've got, you, you do have a stalemate and it appears that neither side is going to be able to break the other one through with their military, even as you say, if we do provide more weapons. But we probably will uh, escalate on that. And, uh, you know, both in the United States and in the, the NATO countries, there's, there is this political uh, disadvantage and that we have to be responsive. Governments need to be responsive to their people, whereas Putin really doesn't so far anyway. Um, so a stalemated World War I type scenario dragging on for a year uh, does raise that question about political support. So how do you assess both in the United States and, and maybe if you could comment on our NATO allies, uh, the sustainability of the political support? Well, first of all, I agree with you, Bob, in that assessment. A member a month ago, however, people were wondering if Putin was facing huge internal political right. challenges at the time of the Prigozhin would-be coup or mutiny attempt or call it what you will. And uh, Putin survived that and he survived it in a way that may, I'm not going to say it's going to make him stronger, but it, if, if Prigozhin can't do it, I don't know who could. And so in that regard, I think we have seen, unfortunately, uh, a reaffirmation that Putin has so manipulated Russian politics that he's not going to be challenged in all likelihood by an internal revolt. And on top of that, I'm not sure that the Russian people are quite as fundamentally against this war as we like to think. And in fact, I think there are a lot of Russians who have at least partially bought the Putin propaganda, that this is a response to Western encroachment, trying to bring Ukraine into NATO and the EU, but also trying to position NATO forces in such a way that they could threaten Russia. That's complete nonsense, of course, but doesn't stop the Russian propaganda machine from making that claim. So that's a long way of agreeing with your premise. But let me get to your question, which is, as you say, what's going to happen in Western countries, in our democracies? And I don't really think that anything is likely to fundamentally challenge our cohesion except next year's U.S. presidential election, possibly. In other words, we've already seen shifts and turns and major political change in most of the big countries of Western Europe in the course of the Ukraine crisis and war. 
where we've seen one type of challenge or another or an election cycle. I guess maybe not in France, but in most of the other countries, you've had a change of government or some kind of test of the political will of that people of that country in regard to this war effort. And they stood by it. And moreover, none of them is is indispensable, except maybe the, you know, Germany and Poland, I suppose, for their logistics positioning more than for uh, their actual amounts of of aid. Although backing up your point again, Bob, the United States, yes, has committed about $80 billion in total assistance to Ukraine. The Europeans collectively have committed about $120 billion because they have made a lot more in the way of financial and humanitarian grants or loans than we have. And you could say they shouldn't really count the loans, but I expect the loans to be forgiven someday. So uh, I, I do think we should count them. And they've also paid a, close to $50 billion in refugee resettlement costs, which dwarf what we've done. And mm-hmm. so the whole world together has given Ukraine over the last year and a half, 200 billion to 250 billion in one type or another of assistance. And that's a remarkable level. It does raise the question of, of how long will this be maintained? And I do think you could see a serious threat, not so much to the to the aid pipeline writ large or absolutely, but to the magnitude of how much we got it opened up. So I think you're right that the first order change after this summer of 2023 will be to give F-16s and attack them and probably to therefore increase the quality and maybe even the quantity of military assistance. But by next year, even if Donald Trump does not win the presidency, even if Ron DeSantis does not win the presidency, I think you'll have a lot of Democrats and moderate Republicans asking how long can and should we do this if all we're doing is essentially reinforcing stalemate? Mm-hmm. It's not reinforcing failure, but reinforcing stalemate. And doesn't it make sense at some point to say to President Zelensky, God bless you. We love you. The Russians have stolen your land. You should get it back, but you're not going to be able to get it all back on the battlefield. We're going to have to at some point accept ceasefire lines, and we're going to have to let this be a long-term political project to wait perhaps for a new leader in the Kremlin. Uh, you know, for the maybe it's 20, 30 year project. And the world will never forget that the Crimea region, that the Donbass region and the areas between are Ukrainian. And we will never rest. Our successors will never rest until we get that land back. And we can't promise you if or when we'll get it all back, but it's not going to be on the battlefield. You're going to have to accept a strategy that acknowledges that. That is the debate that I expect to happen next year. I don't necessarily know how to predict its resolution. I I don't know that we will, in fact, force Zelensky to scale back his battlefield goals. But I think a lot of people in the United States and other parts of NATO will start making that argument. We'll start wondering if that argument is correct. And at that point, it could go either way, not because we're going to abandon Ukraine, but because we may decide that it's time to essentially use our leverage to force them to scale back their military ambitions. Ah. So, Michael, um, I'm curious uh, as to your thoughts about the NATO alliance and the Biden administration's um, handling of the NATO alliance, because I think it's safe to say that when President Biden took office, I think NATO was at a point of, of weakness and a little bit of disarray and a lack of cohesion. And this war really seems to have galvanized that alliance. Now you've got Finland and Sweden joining NATO um, and then the recent uh, commitment at the, at the most recent NATO summit of those uh, member nations to increase their defense spending um, to 2% of, of GDP. So I'm curious as to your assessment of how the Biden administration has kind of handled that alliance, especially given the 
uh, questioning of the alliance by the previous administration, and and whether or not that's something that that going forward, looking ahead into the future, um, does this mean a revitalized NATO? Does this mean a stronger NATO? And what those impacts might be on, I don't know, U.S. defense spending? Well, I think Biden's done a very good job with NATO. I don't necessarily think we've done a very good job with the Ukraine problem broadly defined, because I, without blaming the United States for the war, I do think that this policy dating back to George W. Bush of publicly saying that someday we'll bring Ukraine into NATO, but not yet, and with no timeline and no interim security guarantee, was sort of like painting a bullseye on Ukraine's back and putting them out to the end of the limb uh, uh, on the tree. And to mix some metaphors, but you see my point, it created all the wrong incentives and none of the protections that Ukraine would have needed. And I also think that even in 2021, and then leading into the outbreak of the war on February 24th, 2022, or at least leading into the all-out invasion, because of course, Russia has been fighting Ukraine since 2014 in one way or another. But in that period of time, the Biden administration did a great job releasing intelligence to show that Putin had this war planned and that it was not going to be Ukraine's fault when it occurred. And also warning President Zelensky to be more careful about his personal safety and to believe that this war really could happen when the Ukrainians, like me, did not really think it would happen, assumed it was a a coercive threat to try to get Kyiv to change policy, but not that it was actually going to represent the insanity that it's become. Uh, Ukraine, in a sense, like myself, had a maybe higher opinion of Vladimir Putin's intelligence and morality, but, but at least intelligence, than turns out to have been warranted. But in any event, I don't think the Biden team did a great job in that period because there, I think there were ways to think about alternative security architectures for Europe and for Ukraine specifically that would not have required us keeping this sort of dangling promise of eventual NATO membership as the centerpiece of our strategy. I'm not saying that, again, that that was the only reason that Putin attacked Ukraine. I'm not saying that it was our fault that he attacked, but I do think we created unwise incentives and that we could have foreseen an aspect of the Russian political psyche and Putin's psyche that would have reacted the way it did to this promise. So when I say Biden's done a good job, it's, it, it is on the specific question that you raised of managing the alliance, having the alliance work well together, having the alliance cohere, patiently bringing in Finland and Sweden, and being well postured to deal with any Russian threat in the future. It's too high of a price for a stronger alliance. You know, I would much rather have had a little weaker alliance and no war in Europe. But I think that it is a stronger alliance and it is to Biden's credit. Corey, we've got uh, about uh, six minutes or so in the first segment. So I'm coming at this from a budget nerd uh, perspective, and I'm curious what all this means uh, from the perspective of the defense budget. Um, we've got threats from Russia, the the war, the unending war right now in Ukraine. Uh, China is a threat on multiple levels, not just militarily, but economically, um, te- technologically. Um, you know, weird stuff's happened in the Middle East. Uh, you know, we've got a, a new um, ranking member uh of the Senate Appropriations Committee, who has a, a tendency to spend money like Democrats, uh, so I'm just I'm curious, what does this mean for the defense budget? What is you know is is our defense budget uh, right sized for the current threats? What 
should we be spending more? Should we be spending less? Should we be spending it differently? I think that our defense budget priorities are pretty good overall. I've just been completing a paper that Brookings will release early in August on what I think the defense budget should be. And for old timers like Bob and myself, at least, uh, you'll recognize the title, Bob. It's, it's drawn from what Newt Gingrich said about his views on defense back in the 90s when he wanted to shrink the budget, but he also wanted to be a hawk. And he said, somebody asked him, are you a hawk or are you a budget you know, deficit geek? And, uh, and he said, well, I'm a hawk, but I'm a cheap hawk. So the paper <laughs> is how to be a cheap hawk in the 2020s. And I think that you know the, the Pentagon is focused on China as what it calls the pacing challenge or the most consequential strategic competitor. I like those terms. They're a little clunky, but that's better than calling China the enemy or the adversary. And uh, we do have to take very seriously the technological challenges as well as the logistical and geographical challenges of dealing with the second most powerful military in a location that's difficult for us because of the geography, because of the relatively sparse and few number of allies. So we're really trying to concentrate a lot of the modernization efforts of the American military on dispersing our base network in the Pacific on building more resilient and redundant kinds of bases or, or launching pads for various kinds of potential military attack, for hardening and dispersing satellite fleets, for beefing up military logistics and pre-stationing supplies, and just being ready for various kinds of scenarios with the goal, of course, of preventing and deterring them, not of actually fighting them, because God help us all if the United States and China go to war. But I think that the Pentagon has done a reasonably good job of that, while at the same time recognizing we in the United States do not have the luxury of overly fixating on just one problem, because as Bob points out, by beginning this podcast with the most you know acute strategic or security threat on the planet today, the war right now is happening in Europe, not Asia. It's more of a land war. Our geography there is different. The kind of forces we would need there, or for example, in Korea, are different from those we would most likely need against China. So we need to have a fairly diversified set of military capabilities. And so for the most part, I'm reasonably happy with the defense budget allocation scheme that we've got today, which is not that different from previous administrations or even the latter uh, Cold War years. And we, you know, we have to focus on both Asia and Europe. We have to focus on maritime as well as land-based threats. And we have to pay very good attention to maintaining a strong all-volunteer force and putting a lot of money into people, because that really is one of our key strengths. And moreover, the all-volunteer force is now at some serious risk because recruiting has really turned into a difficult venture for a lot of reasons, not just COVID, but a lot of reasons. So a broad-based defense budget prioritization construct is probably inevitable. And so I don't have major beefs with, with, with the basic system. I had to look pretty hard in writing my paper to find economies that I would propose, to find lower priorities that I thought we might not need quite as much because, again, we've got this broad set of threats and responsibilities. We have about 60 allies or strategic partners around the world. That's good news for us in broad budget terms because they collectively represent about a third of all world military spending. But it's also, of course, got a flip side, which is that we're now responsible for helping protect all those countries, most of which do not spend quite as much as they should on their militaries, whether it's in NATO or East Asia or elsewhere. They typically do not spend the 
that NATO has established as a minimal goal. And, and so having all these allies is mostly a good thing, but still a bit of a mixed bag. For all those reasons, uh, I, Tori, I'm reasonably content with the allocation scheme. And I had to look pretty far and wide to propose $10 billion a year in savings out of a $850 billion a year budget. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman, and Communications Director, Av Harris, and I are talking to Michael O'Hanlon, Senior Fellow with the Brookings Institution, about the war in Ukraine and other national security challenges that impact our nation's fiscal and economic future. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Av Harris, and I are talking with Michael O'Hanlon, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution, about the war in Ukraine and other national security challenges. You know, we talked a lot about Ukraine and its impact in in Europe. I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about another national security challenge, and that's China. It's, um, you know, maybe over the longer term, the the biggest challenge. And I, 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 maybe it's unfair to just give an open-ended question, but, you know, China is part of the, uh, the situation in, in Ukraine, um, you know, as kind of a quasi-ally of, uh, of Russia, but the United States and China are competing in all sorts of uh, venues around the world. And I, I, I guess, let me, let me put it to you this way. I mean, do, do you see the potential of growing tensions with China and should managing those tensions be a major uh, priority for the Biden administration or administrations to come? Yes, I think the answer is yes to both, Bob. And, you know, I'm 62 now and some of my friends are thinking about retiring and they sometimes ask me if I'm thinking of retiring. And I say no. Uh, I feel that the U.S.-China relationship is going to require such intense managing in the next five or 10 years that people of my generation who have been around this debate for a while and can remember back to the Cold War debates and have seen various kinds of issues come and go over the years, we sort of almost should be a little responsibility to try to get things on a better trajectory than they're on now before we think about uh, you know, folding it in. And, and I like to think of myself as sort of a pro-arms control hawk or a Sam Nunn Democrat, you know, call it what you will, but a person who's been around long enough to understand the importance of deterrence and of a strong military and hopefully to have a little bit of street cred in those domains, but also to be sort of a little bit of a peacenik deep down. And I'm especially concerned about the way in which our national security culture and our politics may, on this side of things, drive us towards a more confrontational relationship with China. And I think they have the same problems built into their system, even though it's a different kind of political system, obviously. And so I think preventing this from just getting into a, a ratcheting up where each side vilifies the other is going to be a huge, huge problem uh, and challenge for the years to come. We cannot afford to fight China. They cannot afford to fight us. There's no telling where any such war would end. And there's no reason to think it would stay non-nuclear. And there are plenty of specific things that could be the catalyst for such a war, most notably Taiwan, but also disputes over South China Sea shipping lanes or the Senkaku Islands that Japan and China both claim, or a number of other things or problems on the Korean Peninsula. So, yeah, it can get worse. 
And, you know, right now the Biden administration is trying to ratchet things back a, a notch or two in the tone of the relationship. But the fact that they're trying doesn't mean they'll succeed. And they spent most of the two and a half previous years ratcheting things up like the Republicans in Congress. This has become a bipartisan tendency, not without reason. Chinese behavior has been very troubling in a number of realms. But I worry that we don't just push back against the specific places that we need to push back. We also vilify China and they do the same to us. I'll finish this long answer with a specific uh, point or actually two. One is we've accused the Chinese of genocide against the Uyghur population of northwestern China in Xinjiang province. I think that's the wrong word. You know, I mean, uh, yes, there's severe human rights oppression, but it's not genocide. Genocide to me, historically, emotionally, uh, in all of our practical definitions of the term means lining people up against a wall and machine gunning them or putting them in gas chambers. That's what it's meant historically. The Chinese are not doing that. We shouldn't be talking to the Chinese as if they are a genocidal government. It's just not uh, an accurate or fair rendition of the situation. And yet we've had two successive secretaries of state, Pompeo and Blinken, and now the Biden administration writ large, use that term even in official documents to describe Chinese behavior in Xinjiang. That's just uh, unnecessary exaggeration or hyperbole. And the second, we've now corrected, but when the Chinese came out with a framework for negotiating peace over Ukraine, it wasn't really a peace plan. And they're still too friendly to Putin. And I therefore don't think they're going to be the key to solving this dilemma. But we categorically rejected the whole proposal as simply being a self-serving Chinese attempt to defend their friend Putin, when in fact there were a lot of elements to the framework that were consistent with our own priorities and policies. And it took us a couple of months to publicly acknowledge that. So these are just two places where our tendencies to view this relationship in, in hyper-confrontational terms uh, is really becoming a danger. And you then combine that with all the close encounters we're having with them on sea, in the air, with all the other disputes we're having, and the wrong spark could really ignite a conflict. So yes, I'm extremely worried. Bob, you want to follow up on China? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, President Biden gave a what I thought was a remarkably frank interview with uh, Fareed Zakaria of CNN recently, where he said a couple of things I thought were pretty striking. One, uh, he reminded everybody that he has known President Xi of China longer than any other world leader. They've had more meetings than any um, other world leader. And and when he was asked if he thinks that China's ambition or Xi's ambition is to kind of dislodge the United States as the world's number one economy and uh, you know potentially like dislodge the dollar as the reserve currency, um, he said, "Sure, absolutely." Um, and then, but in his answer, he didn't really say that it was his job or the United States' job to prevent that, but to really kind of what I took away from that is to kind of manage that transition. And as part of that, he talked about this new alliance, this quartet, right, with the U.S., India, Japan, which is now um, changing their constitution so they can do external military things and, and at, you know, and spend uh, on defense. Um, and so it's U.S., China, Japan and India, and that the Chinese are a little bit uh, wary of that. So I, I guess I'm wondering your assessment of. You know, is that the right approach is to kind of manage that transition and acknowledge the fact that there might be nothing we can do about, you know, China as a rising power, um, but maybe some of those strategic alliances can help uh, ensure balance and stability in that region? Yes, I share that, although a couple of caveats. 
when I look at the trajectory for the Chinese economy, I don't think it's inevitable that they will become the dominant global superpower, even economically. For one thing, they've got big problems with their economy, as you know better than I, and as Nick Lardy and David Dollar and others know better than I, with their banking system, with their public sector uh, firms, with now the assault on independence and and entrepreneurship that's affecting some of their big private companies with their aging population, now 1.4 billion, but already starting to decline. Workforce already has declined. And by the end of the century, they could be down to just 800 million people, which is probably a healthier number for them as they face the 22nd century. But you to manage that kind of a population decline of potentially 40% in two generations is going to put enormous strain on their economy, on their pension and social security systems, and they're going to have even bigger problems than we do with all those kinds of trends. By comparison, we have this wonderful demographic reality, and I know you folks at Concord uh, think a lot about entitlements, and going back to Tori's earlier point, clearly we spend too much on entitlements plus interest relative to investing in our long-term economic power and growth, at least in my view, but uh, our problems are nothing compared to China's problems in this realm. And China's growth rate, I think, is already down to you know the three to four percent range. That's a number that a lot of countries would kill for, but it doesn't spell an inevitability about their rise. So I think we're going to we're looking at a 21st century by roughly mid-century or a little sooner, in which you essentially have two superpowers, but we're the superpower that has all the friends. So going back to Biden's point, if we play our cards right and we keep working the U.S.-India relationship in a way that makes them closer to us than they are to China or Russia. And if we continue to maintain strong partnerships and alliances with the other G7 countries, NATO, East Asia, powerhouses, Korea, Australia, uh, we should really be the dominant power of the 21st century, uh, even as the decades progress, or at least we should be able to hold our own. But at some level, and maybe this gets to your question, the real point of your question, Ab, as I understood it, at some point that doesn't matter as much as avoiding war. <laughs> You know, this is not about bragging rights. It's about having a stable and prosperous enough international order that we can all benefit and that China doesn't go gobbling up other countries and doesn't go imposing its form of governance on other countries and doesn't decimate the island of Taiwan in an effort to win it back. So those are the important fundamental goals, even more than who has this or that bragging right about their number one rankings in this, that, or the other thing. And when I look across high technology sectors of the economy, as much as we have a lot of trouble here, again, you folks know better than I, how to measure and document that, I would still say that we are extremely competitive with China in most high and high tech sectors of human science and technology and economic progress. And so I don't have any reason to think that history has turned against us and poor China in a fundamental sense. Sorry. Uh, and talking about China gobbling up other countries, I wanted to focus on a region of the globe that that really doesn't get the attention I think it deserves. And that's the Arctic, the Arctic Circle. Um, with climate change, the Arctic is becoming more navigable. Uh, China and Russia are partnering up to do some really disturbing things up there in terms of controlling shipping lanes and, and militarizing uh, you know, certain areas of, of, of the Arctic. Um, is, is that an area that uh, you and, and and others who look at, at defense policy uh, at Brookings and other think tanks, are, are people 
looking at the Arctic? Are we are, are is the Biden administration studying Arctic policy? Is, is anybody does anybody have an eye on what's going on in the Arctic Circle? That's a great question. And the answer is yes, although it may not be enough and really has popped into people's consciousness much more in the last five to eight years for reasons that you mentioned with trends in climate and trends in the global economy. The Coast Guard and Navy have written about the Arctic and are thinking hard about strategies for the Arctic. And the other bit of good news, but I, I do have a warning or some bad news at the end, but the other bit of good news is that in my opinion, the solution is not that hard because if we are up there, if we simply operate up there and maintain principles of freedom of navigation and you know, open access to those waters, I don't worry that Russia and China will create new military facts on the ground. They may put a couple more bases up there. They may try to charge people for any rescue operations they do when their boats get stuck. They may try to sort of be first among equals, especially the Russians. But we can live with that as long as they're not shooting at our ships and as long as they're not trying to push other people out of any economic activity. In other words, we just need to reaffirm compliance with the general set of principles under the Law of the Sea Convention. Of course, a convention that we're not legally party to in the United States, but that we still expect others to uphold and want to uphold ourselves. And sort of open access to the Arctic is sort of a good enough outcome that since that is more or less the status quo and nobody's shooting at each other up there, as long as we can sustain that set of principles, I think we're going to be okay. But to get to your question, and the reason why I still like your question a lot and the implied, you know, call to arms, so to speak, that you that you make with that question, we do need to be there more than we are now. We need to have more than one icebreaker in the coast. <laughs> we, we, we need to have the Navy think of it as a place where they occasionally sail ships. And so I think we just need capacity for that region at a time when the Coast Guard and Navy are already strained to maintain traditional deployments and presence in the Western Pacific, Persian Gulf, and to some extent, the Mediterranean and the coast of Africa and Latin America. So I think that uh, we're going to, it doesn't require a huge new fleet, but we should have a half dozen icebreakers, not one. And, I, and we are making progress towards that. I think there are presently maybe three under construction. I could be wrong on that number, but the debate has progressed enough that we're starting to make the necessary amends. We still have a ways to go. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Av Harris, and I have been talking with Michael O'Hanlon, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, about the war in Ukraine and other national security challenges that impact the budget and the future. After the break, Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson will join Tori and me to discuss some new CBO projections on how altering a few key assumptions could change the budget outlook. And spoiler alert, it's not a good news story. Michael, thanks for joining us today. My friends, thank you all very much. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. In this segment, Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson joins Tori and me to discuss some of the uh, new CBO projections showing how long-term uh, budget outcomes would vary if you alter certain key assumptions. And some of those assumptions are the uh, rate of productivity, the rate of uh, the, the taxing and discretionary spending as a percentage of GDP, 
and uh, the effect on uh, private uh, investment in the economy, sometimes referred to as crowding out. Anyway, uh, I want to start with one that I looked at specifically, which was where CBO said, "Okay, let's see what happens if instead of over the next 30 years, revenue and discretionary spending, that's the appropriations as about a third of the budget enacted on an annual basis. Let's say that instead of our baseline projection that we have for those programs, let's say that they stay the same rate as a percentage of the economy as they have over the past 30 years. So it's basically saying, you know, past is, is prologue and let's see what happens. They plugged in those numbers and you get substantially higher discretionary spending because in the past, discretionary spending has averaged 7.1% of GDP, whereas the longer-term projections assume that it's going to fall to 5.4% of GDP. Uh, and that's simply because they lock in a number and then it, uh, the, the, the number tends to grow slower than the economy. So that produces uh, favorable budget outcomes if you look at uh, on paper. So, uh, and on the revenue side, it actually results in lower revenue because the 30-year average that they're using is 7.1% of GDP, whereas the official assumption is considerably higher. Some, uh, it's like 184 or 18.3% of GDP. So the result is pretty dramatic. Uh, in fact, the number go the debt number goes literally off the charts. I mean, it it, it goes to about a hundred two hundred and forty nine percent of GDP. Remember, it's about ninety eight percent now. Uh, by the end of the twenty forties, in fact, CBO cuts off its analysis at twenty forty nine because by that time the debt is so big that CBO says they really don't have any basis for scoring it. <laughs> it's sort of they don't know how the economy would react to debt that high. So they don't bother to give a number uh, beyond uh, 2049 because it's already so high. So I, what, what fascinates me about this is that this is not some sort of radical idea, ra radical uh, assumption. CBO is basically saying what happens if. Two key assumptions, discretionary spending and, and revenues, behave the same way over the next 30 years as they have over the past 20 years. These are, after all, political choices that were made on these two categories over the past 30 years. So what happens if uh, we don't have higher revenues and we don't have lower discretionary spending, as we're assuming in the baseline? Uh, it's, it's truly uh, even more unsustainable than current policy. So... Um, uh, we're going to have to do better. We're going to have to have uh, higher revenues or lower discretionary spending than we have been used to, or do something very, very serious on the mandatory spending side, uh, because economic growth is not going to is not going to help us. Because lower taxes, CBO says, and higher discretionary spending could actually help the economy. Uh, by increasing incentives to work and save and by, you know, increasing federal investment spending. And uh, uh, so uh, even that gets swamped. Those favorable economic effects get swamped um, by the sheer growth of debt. 
Um, so those are kind of alarming. That, that, that one caught my attention. Uh, uh, Steve, uh, what were you looking at? There's the short run effect and the long run effect. And, you know, the, the standard Keynesian model says that if you cut taxes and increase spending, that that puts more money in people's pockets and they go out and spend and that stimulates the economy in the short run. The problem is in the long run, what determines economic growth is the level of, of investment in you know, plants and equipment, buildings, machinery, computers. You know, it's, it's the investment in the real economy that grows the economy and, and affects productivity over time. And the other scenario that, that CBO ran is they said, you know, under our standard assumption, if the government goes out and borrows a dollar, we assume that um, private savers will, will buy part of the debt and foreign investors will buy part of the debt. But essentially, for every dollar of government debt, you're going to reduce private sector investment in plant and equipment uh, by about 33 cents. So you, you lose, you know, the, the, the crowding out or the trade-off between government debt and private investment is about 33 cents. And obviously, if you have less investment, you have a smaller economy, less income per capita. So they said, well, what happens if that that uh, crowding out is not 33 cents, but what happens if it's 66 cents? What if it's twice as big? And when they look at that scenario and they go out 30 years, uh, the, the debt rises instead of going from you know, about 98% to 180%, it goes up to almost 250%. So again, they reach that, the, the nosebleed uh, <laughs> uh, altitude and says, you know, we, we don't know what would happen if the, the US debt, you know, pub publicly held debt reached 250% of GDP. Uh, it, it's just, you know, it's unchar uncharted territory. But in the model, when they approach that level of, of debt, it crowds out private investment and reduces the size of the economy so that per capita, uh, the, the economy on a per capita basis is about 16% smaller. So, you know, it clearly has an effect uh, on future, you know, the, the, the lib future living standards of the, of the, of the, uh, of the American, American uh, economy. And these two scenarios that we've talked about that sort of go off the charts, uh, I, I mean, they sound really high and they are really high. And we've already got a really high. I mean, the baseline is 181 percent of GDP by 2050. Right. That's bad enough. Uh, these mm -hmm. potential outcomes would, would just make it so much uh, worse. Tori, do you have any good news? No. Oh. <laughs> Short answer. No. End of show. Done. Uh so the one outcome I wanted to look at was uh, productivity. I mean, you hear a lot among Repo Republicans, especially whom I used to work for, uh, that you know we don't need to worry about uh, cutting taxes. We don't need to worry about uh, increasing taxes. We can cut taxes. We don't need to worry about entitlement reform because we can just grow our way out of this deficit problem that we have. So one of the things that the Congressional Budget Office looked at was productivity, changes in productivity. Um, if you've been a longtime listener of this show, you know that uh, economic growth is a function of two things, uh, labor force growth, you know, the number of people that we have to work in an economy, but also productivity growth. Uh, we know that the, the predictions of labor force growth are, are pretty dire just because women are marrying later and having fewer children, which is having an impact on future uh, workforce. So one of the things CBO looked at was productivity. Can we make our workforce more product productive? Or if let's assume that, you know, capital and labor as they work in conjunction in our economy, let's assume that they're more productive. So they increase uh, productivity growth by a half a percentage point in their baseline forecast. 
the uh, the, the the mechanism, if you will, the the chain reaction is that okay, you, you, if productivity increases, you've got a higher return to owners of capital and labor. So people who own stock equity, but also workers because they own the labor, um, their incomes rise. And when incomes rise, tax revenues rise. And so budget deficits fall, all else being equal. The good news there is that if we're a half a percentage point more productive, um, debt held by the public would only be 137% of GDP by 2053 <laughs> rather than 180. So guess what? It still sucks. Um, in, in, in 2053, our debt is still too damn high. Uh, so for everybody out there thinking that we can just grow our way out of this deficit, that we can just tuck, c- cut taxes ad infinitum, if they think that artificial intelligence is going to save the day, um, it's just it's just not. Okay, The only thing that's going to save the day, tough choices on revenues and tough choices on spending. And how do we all know that we are really who we are and not some artificially uh, (laughs) intelligence generated program? We'll never know. We'll never tell. Because when somebody pinches me, I say, ouch, that's how you know. (laughs) This is is the real Bob Bixby saying that's all the time we have. We'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. 